Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes in Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our study. Father, we're thankful for your word, that it is in your word that you reveal to us who you are. You reveal to us who we are and the basic problems and challenges that we face in life. And that as we face these challenges, the issue before us is always, uh, in whom do we trust? Do we trust in our own resources? Do we trust in our own capabilities? Or are we ultimately trusting in you and relying upon your grace to sustain us and your power to deliver us? And so the issue before us, as it has always been down through the ages before every Christian, before the nations of uh, Israel and Judah in the Old Testament is in whom do we trust? Are we focusing on you or focusing on ourselves? The issue ultimately, therefore, is volition. Father, we pray that as we study this morning that you would challenge us in terms of our own personal life, our own personal relationship with you, and that we may recognize the importance of walking step by step, day by day with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 24. 2 Kings chapter 24. Now, as we come to the end of our study in 2 Kings, we see the collapse of the southern kingdom of Judah. This is a sad and heart-wrenching description of the defeat and the destruction of this nation that had experienced the glories of God's grace under David had witnessed the expansion of the kingdom and its worldwide dominance under Solomon and all of the glories of Solomon. And then from the end of Solomon's reign, we've seen this trajectory down through uh, the period of the divided king kingdom where the people were constantly being uh, tempted to follow everybody else, to follow the other nations, to follow the other peoples, to... Uh, worship at the altars of all of the false gods, worship at the altar of prosperity, worship at the altar of fertility. We have seen that there have been a few uh, high spots in their history, times when they were uh, truly trusting, uh, trusting in God, but yet again and again and again we see the people fail. 
And the area in which they failed was in the area of trust, the area of where, what did they rely upon for their, for meaning in life? What did they rely upon for happiness in life? What did they rely upon for uh, real sustenance in the midst of chaos, in the midst of adversity? And again and again, they fail to put their trust in God and they put their trust in man. And what we see when we come to the end of Second Kings is in this last chapter and a half that describes the destruction of the southern kingdom, the destruction of the monarchy, what appears to be the end to the house of David and the destruction of the monarchy, we see that the key principle in their destruction is arrogance. And just as arrogance is at the key of the destruction and the collapse of the southern kingdom of Judah, arrogance is also the basic problem that we all face. And the scriptures again and again warn against arrogance. Arrogance is simply defined as self-sufficiency rather than God-sufficiency. We no longer think of God as being the one sufficient to provide everything that we have in life. We no longer think of him as the source of our meaning in life, the source of our happiness, the source of all of the blessings in life. We think that it is up to us, and we get caught up in the uh, finite details of life, and we put our focus, our happiness on, on people, we put our happiness on things, and we put our happiness in terms of certain circumstances. But whenever we put our focus on people, circumstances, or things as the source of our happiness or stability or meaning in life, then we become slaves to whatever it is that we are putting our focus on. Because as those circumstances change, if they're good, then our emotions swing one way. If they're bad, then our emotions swing the other way. We're basically saying that the state of our happiness then becomes dependent upon whether we have pleasant circumstances or unpleasant circumstances or whether the people around us are are responding the way that we think they should. They're acting the way they they should. They're treating us the way they should. And so if the people are one way, then we're happy. If people around us are another way, then we're miserable. So we become slaves to those people. And the same thing happens with just the things around the possession of things, the possessions, materialism, the upswing of the economy. Uh, Then people are happy. They feel good. uh, They spend money. Everything is going wonderful. But when things go down, people lose their job. Then they become depressed. They become focused on themselves more and more. And we see this in our country today as the, the level of uncertainty increases because of the status of the economy. Then we see an increase in depression. You see an increase in suicide. You see an increase in uh, divorces as families and couples are unable to face those challenges, those pressures together from the stability of God's word then it affects them and their their relationships begin to fragment. All of this is because there's a failure to put their trust ultimately in God rather than in man. So the challenge for it for us is to remain humble, which means to remain obedient to God. Humility in the scripture isn't this idea of some sort of a self-deprecation. It is an attitude of submission to the authority of God. The most humble man in the scripture was Moses. And and yet Moses was the most dynamic leader 
in the ancient world. He led three, approximately two and a half to three million uh, Jews through the wilderness, through the desert for over 40 years. There were times when he did get impatient with them, but he was the, the leader. And so he demonstrated great leadership skills. He had a great authority over the people, and he understood the, the extent of his authority, and he operated within that. But yet the scripture says he was humble. That is because he was obedient to God in everything. So the opposite of humility is arrogance. Arrogance is being dependent upon uh, ourselves rather than being dependent upon God. It is basically an attitude of rebellion rather than an attitude of submission uh, to God. In our study in Second Kings, as we come to this end period, which covers the last has covered the last few years of the uh, of the reign of Josiah, which we looked at two or three weeks ago, uh, to his successor for a brief period, Je- uh, Jehoahaz, for three months, and then Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and finally Zedekiah. As we look at that period, that is the same time frame as the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah began to. Uh, minister to the people for the Lord to speak to them, to challenge them in their spiritual life, 13 years into Josiah's reign. And so roughly from 627 B.C. until Josiah's death in 609, you have the constant uh, uh, preaching, teaching, Bible teaching of Jeremiah, and he is constantly warning the people against their arrogance, against their desire to go after uh, the idols and the false gods, their disloyalty to God, warning the people about where this is going to lead, that God has, has already made his promise because of the evil of Manasseh's reign, that he will fulfill the promise that he made in Leviticus chapter 26, as well as in Deuteronomy 28, that when the people reach a certain state of apostasy and rebellion against him, apostasy means to fall away from your trust in God, that when they reach a certain stage of spiritual perversion, then God would ultimately remove the nation from the land. I want to read to you the description that God gave of this fifth stage of divine discipline as outlined in Leviticus chapter uh, 26. After going through four increasingly intense stages of divine discipline, then God gets to that final fifth stage. And he says in verse 27 of Leviticus 26, he says, And after all this, if you do not obey me but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. That's in talking about an uh, increased severity over the previous stage. You shall, and then the description of what will happen as they come under military attack, military invasion, and they begin to suffer the consequences of being under the heel of a foreign power as they are under siege. Uh, the Lord says, you shall eat the flesh of your sons. And you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And that came true both in the siege in 588 to 586 B.C. and again the second time 
in the period from 66 to 70, during the most intense stage of the siege against Jerusalem, both under the uh, Babylonian army and the Roman army, the people were starving to death, and mothers would uh, eat their own children. They would cook their own children after they had died, and cannibalism was rampant just because people wanted to survive. It's a horrible time, and it's a horrible thing to contemplate. But God, God had promised this, that he would bring them under such oppression that they would uh, just implode on the inside. And then God says in verse 30 of Leviticus 26, I will destroy your high places, I will cut down your incense altars, and I will cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. I will lay, wait, lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. I will bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. And we see the fulfillment of that in the description of what happens in this last stage of the kingdom of Judah. So as we look at this in Second uh, Kings chapter uh, 24, beginning in verse 8 down through chapter 25, we see that this is uh, the end result of the life of a nation that has failed to trust God, failed to uh, fulfill the plan that God had for them, failed to give their loyalty to God, and the result is that they have co- collapsed uh, completely. It is at the same time that this happens in this time period in Jeremiah's ministry from uh, five, uh, roughly 527 B.C. up through the time of the collapse of Jerusalem in 586 that Jeremiah again and again is bringing a, a message from God. And it is in this context, during this time period, that we have Jeremiah's message uh, given in Jeremiah chapter 17, a chapter we've looked at several times in the past. I'm just going to remind you at the beginning of this one verse. In Jeremiah 17:5, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Now, when we get to the conclusion, I'm going to come back to that passage, but as many times as you've heard that passage taught or referred to. Uh, Jim Myers referred to that, had a message on that passage when he was here and when he spoke in September. Uh, I also have referred to that at different times. But the historical context of that is in this time period of the collapse of the southern kingdom of Judah, and it expresses the ultimate indictment on the life of the southern kingdom. Why does God bring all this horror upon Israel? Why does the southern kingdom collapse? What brought this about? And it is summarized in this indictment that's expressed in Jeremiah chapter uh, 17, verse 5. Now, historically, what we've seen is the last period of God's grace blessing to Israel under the reign of, of King Josiah. It has exemplified the principle of grace before uh, judgment. Whenever God brings that this kind of discipline or judgment on the life of a nation or the life of believers, it's preceded 
by God's grace. And not only do you have the grace blessing period of Josiah, who is a godly king, who is leading the nation in terms of the uh, Mosaic law and seeing that that is implemented, but what you also have at this time is numerous prophets that are raised up by God, not just Jeremiah, but after the death of Josiah, as we get into the evil reigns of uh, Jehoahaz, the evil reigns of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and finally Zedekiah, again and again and again, God sends prophets. He sent dozens and dozens of prophets to the kingdom of Judah, announcing God's grace, extending his favor, giving them again and again the opportunity to turn away from their idols, to turn away from their rebellious ways, to humble themselves under God and to turn to him to experience his grace, blessings, and provision during this time when he would be bringing judgment upon the nation. And yet, again and again, the people rejected that. They preferred the words of the false prophets, false prophets like Hananiah, who is described in Jeremiah chapter 28 as one who told the people that that actually the, the after the second invasion of the Babylonians, that uh, two years within two years, the yoke of Babylon would be broken, and that all of the temple treasures that had been stolen by Nebuchadnezzar and taken to Babylon would all be returned uh, to Jerusalem. Jehoiakim would be returned to uh, be the king in the southern kingdom, and God would once again uh, bless the nation. And yet this was all just an outright lie. So within the nation, within the history of the southern kingdom, what you had was something very similar to what we have in within Christianity today and within world religions. You have one group that is teaching the truth and proclaiming the truth, but it's not what people want to hear. It is not positive. It is not something that is... Uh, that motivates people, that uh, causes people to think wonderful thoughts about each other and think that, oh, everything's going to be great. I just need to uh, think positive thoughts, and I can be successful in whatever I do. That was the message of the false prophets. Again and again, we see uh, that that kind of message echoed down through the centuries in uh, many different places, but especially today in the 21st century in America, we hear pulpits. Some of the largest churches in the land are, are filled with uh, pastors and messages that focus only on the positive. Never do you hear them discuss sin. Never do you hear them discuss the gospel. Never do you hear them discuss uh, divine discipline or God's judgment. Never do you hear them uh, even uh, uh, explain the word. In other words, all you ever hear is nice human viewpoint philosophy, motivational speaking, and uh, and very positive comments about people, but it's not based on the truth of God's word. It's focusing on trusting in man rather than trusting in God. So last time, as we got into our uh, study here in um, uh, the this portion of Second Kings, we saw that Josiah was killed here at Megiddo in a uh, battle that he brought on himself. Uh, it wasn't necessarily in disobedience to God. We don't know the circumstances why he made the decision. But Pharaoh Necho, the Pharaoh of Egypt, was moving north to aid the Assyrians up in the Battle of Carchemish. And as they were going through the, uh, the land of Judah, 
Josiah marshaled his army and went out against them and was killed in battle. And upon his death, he was succeeded by his son, uh, Jehoahaz. And Jehoahaz is um, ultimately captured by uh, Pharaoh Necho after just a short time of three months. And he is imprisoned here at Riblah, which you see located uh, at this place. And then uh, he will take him, Necho will take uh, Jehoahaz to Egypt in chains, and he never, never returns to the land, never sees the land again. And he dies in prison uh, in Egypt. We don't know anything else uh, about him. And then he is replaced by, uh, by his uh, son, or by, uh, rather by his uh, other, younger brother, uh, Jehoiakim. And we begin to read about Jehoiakim in uh, verse 8. We read about Jehoiakim in Second uh, Kings 24, verse 8. Now, Jehoiakim, excuse me, uh, Jehoiakim then rules for 11 years. My glasses slipped that N and that M at the end of Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim is certainly uh, confusing. Jehoiakim dies. He reigns for 11 years. He dies at the end of verse 6 and 7. And then Jehoiakim, uh, uh, Ken rather, with an N, uh, comes to the throne. He's also known as Jeconiah or simply Coniah. And he comes to the throne when he is eight years of, uh, 18 years of age. We read in verse 8, Jehoiakim was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father has done. So he continues to carry out the policy, the policy of idolatry, that is the major policy that has been uh, uh, reintroduced into the southern kingdom with, uh, with uh, uh, Jehoahaz. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And at Verse 10, at the time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against Jerusalem, and the city is besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against the city, his servants besieging it, then Jehoiakim, king of Judah, his mother, his servants, his princes, and his officers went out to the king of Babylon. And the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, that is the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, took him prisoner. Now, just to summarize, what we know about Jehoiakim is this. Uh, first of all, he had several alternate names. He's called Jeconiah. He's called Je- uh, uh, Coniah. Uh, several other uh, variants of spellings, but they would all be pronounced about the same. Uh, about the same, he reigns for uh, three months and ten days. His the dates of his reign we can uh, uh, say with pretty good certainty because of the uh, records discovered in uh, archaeologically uh, record in Babylon called the Babylonian Chronicles. So he reigned from the sixth of December, uh, five ninety eight. Uh, B.C. until the 16th of March in 597. And he so he just reigns for that short time uh, when he is 18 years of age. Now, what happened is that uh, after Nebuchadnezzar's defeat of Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Carchemish up here in 605, Egypt basically retreats to Egypt. The Egyptian army retreats. 
and it's no longer in a position to challenge the dominance and the increasing power of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar then in 605 had invaded. That's the first invasion into Judah. This is when he took back a number of captives, including uh, Daniel, uh, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are taken captive in 605 back to Babylon. So a number of members of the royal family had already been deported uh, to Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar is ruling with uh, something of an iron fist. Now, for the in this period of time, uh, Jehoiakim had been uh, subservient uh, to the Babylonian army, um, to the Babylonian power and the authority of of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And it seems that Nebuchadnezzar, probably in 605, were told that he, in the Chronicles account, that he was going to take Jehoiakim, a prisoner, back to Babylon. And he had put him in chains. But that was about the time that his father, Nabopolassar, died. And so he went back to Nebuchadnezzar, had to get back to Babylon as quickly as he could. He uh, released Jehoiakim, and he continued out the remainder of his reign. But when Jehoiakim died and Jehoiakim came to the throne, then this did not uh, please uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Jehoiakim was viewed as being pro-Egypt and not being uh, pro-Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and so uh, Jehoiakim is taken as a prisoner back to, uh, back to Babylon. And at that particular time, Nebuchadnezzar came in and plundered the palace. It had been the palace of the kings of Judah. Uh, and everything of value, all of the gold, all of the silver, uh, was taken and removed back to Babylon. And they went into the temple and they took all the articles of gold and they cut them down uh, so that they could be transported back to, uh, back to Babylon. We're told that Nebuchadnezzar took 10,000 captives back to Babylon, which included all of the royal family, including Jehoiakim, his mother, uh, Nehushtan, his, his children, uh, the key military leaders, all of his, uh, all of the generals, all of his military staff, all of his, what would have been his cabinet, his advisors, everybody in a leadership position was taken out of Judah. This would just decimate the population there, and they would have no ability to uh, organize effectively and to uh, have another rebellion against the king, against Nebuchadnezzar. And so they took 10,000 captives back. Also, this included uh, many of the artisans, the craftsmen, the merchants, basically the upper class and most of the middle class is decimated at this time as all of the key people are removed to Babylon. Not only do we have those 10,000 go back, but there's an additional 7,000 military, uh, one particular component within the military, one unit comprised of 7,000. That unit is removed uh, back to Babylon. And so what this would do in effect would destroy the capability of the southern kingdom of Judah to organize an effective resistance and to uh, rebel against uh, Nebuchadnezzar. So we're told at the uh, end of this that he, that is Nebuchadnezzar, replaces Jehoiakim with his uncle Mataniah, and he renames him 
Zedekiah. Zedekiah, uh, again, is a name that would uh, sound as if it were um, uh, a positive name. It means Yahweh is righteous. And so it's more of a traditional name, but yet Zedekiah was uh, only a puppet king set up by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, what's interesting is that when you read in Jeremiah and you read in Ezekiel, uh, various passages, they will date themselves not according to the reign of Zedekiah, but according to the reign of uh, Jehoiakim, that such and such happened in the uh, fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim. Well, he only was on the throne. He was only the, the effective leader for three months in Jerusalem. But they, the prophets would date their prophecies according to when uh, Jehoiakim came, uh, came to the throne. And so he was taken back with, along with all of his family uh, to Babylon where he was received uh, favorable treatment from the Babylonians. They had uh, a lot of freedom. Uh, he lived with his family and in an area where uh, most of the other uh, officials that had been taken back to Babylon lived. He's mentioned in the Babylonian Chronicle as Yalkin, the king of the land of Yehuda. This is indicated in a number of different uh, uh, tablets that have been recovered, and so we have good historical uh, records to attest to what happened to uh, Jehoiakim besides what's given, uh, what's given in the Scripture. But there is one other important note about, about Jeremiah, I mean about uh, uh, Jeconiah, and this begins in uh, Jeremiah 22, verses 24 and following. This is called the Keniah curse or the Jeconiah curse. In Jeremiah 22:24, God pronounces a judgment on the line of Jeconiah. He says, "As I live, declares the Lord, even though Keniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off." This is uh, language indicating rejection of his lineage. He said, and I will go, he goes on to say in verse 25, and I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. And this is uh, exactly what was fulfilled. And then God, God went on to say, but as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it, and they never did. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, shattered jar, the question's asked, or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? Verse 29, O land, 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 Jeremiah cries, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. And no direct descendant of Jeconiah ever really ruled from the throne of David in Jerusalem or had prosperity there. Jeconiah is mentioned when we come to Matthew 1.16, as being in the legal line of Joseph. 
there is, uh, in, in, the, in the Matthew chronology, or in the Matthew genealogy, it traces the lineage of Joseph. Luke records the lineage of Mary, and they're distinct. Mary's line goes back to Nathan, a son of David. Whereas this line, which is the line of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah, went back through Solomon, and Jeconiah was in that line. Usually when this is taught, the focus is on Jeconiah. But if you think about it, this entire lineage from Solomon down was a lineage of descendants from David that, with uh, a few exceptions, such as Hezekiah and Josiah, uh, with few exceptions, had not honored the Lord. And so that line has been rejected from being the direct physical lineage for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the legal line for the kingship of Judah. And so Joseph is in that line. But what Matthew is showing in his genealogy is that Jesus could not have been the physical son of Joseph because Joseph was in that direct lineage from Jeconiah, and God had announced that no one from that line could prosper on the throne of David. And so in Matthew's genealogy, what he is showing, this, genealogies appeared, oh, that's boring, I don't understand this, why do I go through all these begats? But it's, it, he's, he's demonstrating something, and that is that Joseph could not have been the physical father of Jesus because of the Jeconiah curse. What Luke does in his genealogy is show that Jesus has a direct physical inheritance, uh, physical line through Mary going back to Nathan, another son of David's, so that he has royal blood in him. He is a direct descendant of David and therefore can be, uh, can fulfill the covenant uh, that God had made with David. So the Kaniah curse is an important thing to understand in terms of those genealogies in relationship to the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we come to verse 17 of 2 Kings 24, we get a summary of the reign of Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the uncle of of Jehoiakim. He is placed on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar. He's the youngest son of Josiah, a brother to Jehoiakim and Jehoahaz, and yet he becomes just a puppet, puppet figure under the control of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar renamed him, uh, uh, renamed him Zedekiah. His original name was Mataniah, but he's renamed Zedekiah, which means the Lord is my righteousness. This is just the same kind of thing that happened uh, with Jehoahaz when he's renamed by Pharaoh Necho. It shows that, that uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has the real power, the real authority over the king. Of, uh, of Judah, he is the overlord who is ultimately the one, uh, the one in charge. So we see Zedekiah come to the throne in verse 17. We're told he's 21 years of age when he became king, and he reigned for 11 years. And then we're told his lineage, his background, so we know how to put him within the family line of David. And then verse 19, we read again the indictment that he also did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, this takes us back, remember, God 
promised that in his fury and in his wrath he would bring judgment upon uh, the nation for their disobedience. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem and Judah, that he finally cast them out from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So what happened here with uh, Zedekiah is that he is subservient initially in those first uh, seven or eight years, from 597 down to about 590 or 589. He is subservient to Babylon, but he's under a lot of pressure internally. He's being uh, pressured on the one hand by the few that are still obedient to God. He's being pressured by Jeremiah and Jeremiah's announcements, uh, continuous announcements to Zedekiah about how God is going to bring judgment uh, upon the land. And God continues to offer grace to Zedekiah and to the people. In fact, Jeremiah comes to uh, Zedekiah and says, if you will, uh, if you will surrender uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, then you will, uh, if you will humble yourself to God, surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, then you will live out your life in peace. So again and again, God offered these blessings to Zedekiah, but Zedekiah uh, refused. He, his heart was hardened against God, and he listened to the false prophets that there would be uh, hope and deliverance from the uh, uh, from the enemy of Babylon, and so he dug in his heels, and he w- went into battle, and and Jerusalem came under siege, and went through a horrible time of about an 18-month siege uh, from the Babylonians, in which the people were starving to death. They went through a time of famine, a time when mothers would eat their own children in order to survive. And this is described in chapter uh, 25. And as we see this, what we learn as a second characteristic of Zedekiah's reign is that the people lived according to a fantasy. They were completely divorced from reality. The false prophets would come and give them all of these glowing reports that God indeed would deliver the nation, that within two years the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar would be broken, that all of the temple treasures would be restored to the temple, and that God would once again restore the nation to a point of of glory. And yet, in contrast to the message of the false prophets, the few true prophets preached that judgment was coming, that the nation would be destroyed, uh, unless they humbled themselves under God and humbled and just uh, surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar, but they refused to do that. And so under pressure from another group within the nation, the group that were pro-Egypt, who thought that if we just ally ourselves with the Egyptians, that the Egyptians will then come and deliver us and save us, much in the same way that you had the same kind of group a 100 years earlier with Hezekiah. If we just trust in the Egyptians, then the Egyptians will deliver us. And so Zedekiah entrusted himself to them. Uh, he yielded to their pressure, and he rebelled against, uh, against Nebuchadnezzar. The people were living in a fantasy world. They weren't believing the truth. They were believing a lie. And when people believe a lie and start living as if that lie is true then they are living in just a, com- a, a complete fantasy world that is uh, completely divorced from reality. They will make decisions based on that view of the world, and the result is a complete collapse. 
which is what happened in Israel. Now, the basis, the bottom line, the foundation for that lie was their rejection of the first two commandments in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, verse 1, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. What they did was they replaced the worship of God with the worship of all of these other false gods like all of the other nations. So that was an act of treason under a theocracy. It was an act of complete rebellion against God. Second, they replaced God with the worship of these idols, and they constructed these uh, these figures of stone and wood and metal. In Exodus 20, verse 4, the second commandment is, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing mercy, notice there's always mercy in the midst of judgment, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And so God is going to fulfill this judgment and bring this upon the nation. The nation's filled with false optimism because they are building their life on a, on a lie. And as long as you do that, whether that's building it on the lie of Darwinism, whether it's building it on the lie of Marxism or any of these other uh, false philosophies, the lies of, uh, of a human utopia in socialism, when you live on the basis of that lie, it will eventually uh, collapse. So Zedekiah takes the nation to this point of collapse, and the siege of Jer- Jerusalem began in, <clears throat> in 588, beginning on about January the 15th, of uh, 588 or 587 probably. It's real confusing. You have two or three different schemes of chronology here. So it's uh, more than likely January the 15th of 587. It's an 18-month siege ending in uh, roughly July, August of 586. So January 15th, 587, uh, there is the beginning of the siege, and then it the city is taken on the uh, ninth day of the fourth month of 586, and then a month later, the walls of the city are burned to the ground. It is believed in, in Jewish tradition that the date of the burning of the city of Jerusalem, when the temple is burnt, the walls are burnt, the palace is burnt, when all this is destroyed, that it's on the same day that uh, the city was destroyed in A.D. 70, and that uh, and that shows the consistency of God's plan is another uh, sign that this wasn't just some uh, circumstantial event, but was under the uh, was under the sovereignty of God. At the time of the collapse, we read that the king Zedekiah uh, uh, attempted to escape and attempted to get away from the. Uh, Chaldean army. In verse 5 we read, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All of his army was scattered from him, so they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, 
and they pronounce judgment on him. So Zedekiah is brought there to Riblah in chains, and all of his family, all of his sons are brought before him, and Nebuchadnezzar had all of his sons, and this remember, this will wipe out his line uh, completely from having any, any descendants on the throne. All of his sons are brought before him and executed in front of him, and after they have executed the last of his sons, then they put out the eyes of Zedekiah so that the last sight that he would remember would be the death of his sons. And then he is bound in chains, and then he was taken to live out the rest of his life uh, in Babylon. Then we're told that that there's another uh, mopping up operation in, in Jerusalem, starting in verse 8. This is when uh, the head of the palace guard, Nebuzaradan, the head of Nebuchadnezzar's palace guard, uh, goes back to Jerusalem, and he goes through Jerusalem, and he... he um, uh, he gathers up all of the upper-level uh, leaders that he can find. He finds the high priest. He finds the one who is uh, under the high priest. He finds a number of military commanders and a few of the uh, cabinet members, the advisors to the king. And he then uh, takes them back to Ribla, uh, where they will be uh, executed, and he burns the rest of the city down, all of the, the the house of the Lord, the temple, the palace, the walls, everything is completely uh, destroyed so that only the poorest of the poor are left in the land. Everyone else is taken captive and deported uh, to Babylon. In verse 12 we read, But the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. So they would be left to just uh, produce some wine that would be for the uh, for the uh, uh, palace for Nebuchadnezzar and to raise some crops, but the remainder of the people are taken out of the land. Then we're given a description in verses 13 through uh, 17 of how the what remained of valuable metals in the temple, the bronze, well, all the gold and silver has already been taken. Now they're going to break down all the rest of the temple, take all of the bronze metal that was there, melt it down, and take it back uh, back to Babylon. And then uh, we're told that all of these, these leaders are executed that have been taken captive. And then we come to the last section, which I call the epilogue in verses 22 and following. There's two parts to the epilogue. One has to do with what happens uh, to the newly appointed leadership in uh, Jerusalem, and then second, what happened to Jehoiakim, who we know uh, has been a prisoner all of this time in Babylon. In verses 22 to 26, we're told that uh, Nebuchadnezzar appointed a man named Gedaliah to be the uh, administrator of Jerusalem and administrator of this new province uh, under the control and domination of, of Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, the people uh, despised him, and it's only a month or six weeks after he is appointed that he was assassinated by a group that had um, uh, conspired together uh, to kill him. But after assassinating him, then they were in fear for their lives, uh, feared uh, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, and so they they uh, left, and another large group of those who'd been left in, in Judah uh, depart for Egypt. Now, this sets the, all will set the stage for what happens during the time of the Babylonian captivity 
and into the what we call the intertestamental period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there will end up being two uh, very large, uh, significant groups of Jews in the ancient world at this time, one in Egypt and the largest, of course, in Babylon. And then after the return from that captivity, then you'll have a third group that is in the land. But you never have a return from Egypt. You never have a return from others who are scattered up to the north, to, to uh, the area we call Turkey now, or to into Europe. They stay in the diaspora or the dispersion. It is primarily those who are in Babylon that are the ones that, uh, that return to the land. So we have this, this group that uh, leaves and goes to Egypt, and then the, the book of Second Kings closes in verses 27 to 30 to go back to Jehoiakim and what takes place in terms of his captivity. He stays uh, under captivity, probably more of a form of house arrest uh, until the uh, approximately 561 uh, B.C. after a time of 30, um, some 37 years, then he is released from his imprisonment. He continues to live in Babylon with his family. He's treated with honor by Evel Merodach, who is a successor to Nebuchadnezzar, and he is allowed to eat all of his meals at the king's table, and he is treated with honor and respect uh, for the remaining days of his life. And so this is how this, this study ends. In 1 Kings, you have the glory days of David and Solomon at the beginning of the study. And then from that point, it's all been downhill. And we just see how the nation, uh, first of all, it fragments into the northern kingdom and southern kingdom uh, because of their apostasy and because of their rebellion against God. We see all of the military and economic problems that come as a result of their rejection of God's word, their refusal to obey God's word, and we end with both the northern kingdom out, completely scattered and dispersed by the Assyrians, and now the southern kingdom of Judah is destroyed, uh, and they are taken captive to Babylon. Others have fled to Egypt, and again we see all of God's people, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are not in the land. They are in a place of judgment. They have been scattered throughout the world, and it looks hopeless. It looks as if God has turned his back on them. But the message really is that God has not forsaken them. The message of the prophets of Jeremiah and Ezekiel is that this will only be for a time of 70 years, and then God will restore them to the land. But that restoration is only a foreshadowing of a future restoration that will take place at a still future time when God will restore all of the Jews to the land and establish his glorious kingdom in the land. But that cannot happen until the people turn completely to God and submit themselves to him. And so this takes us back to our opening uh, passage in Jeremiah 17:5 and following. The judgments announced in 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert. A shrub is is a plant that is small. It's not uh, luxuriant. You don't think of a shrub as something that uh, that is beautiful, something that will provide a lot for us. It doesn't provide a lot of shade. 
uh, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert, and he shall not see good when it comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness and a salt land which is not inhabited. This is the man who doesn't trust in the Lord. He's in a place of judgment without prosperity, without fertility, without hope. In contrast, you have the man who trusts in the Lord. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose confidence or hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree that is planted by the waters. In other words, the, the contrast is between this, this huge tree that is well watered versus this shrub that is shriveled in a parched land. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river. And will not fear when heat comes, that is when uh, adversity comes, when suffering comes, when difficulty comes. Because he is planted by the waters, which represents the, the word of God and the grace of God, he has that which sustains him even in the period of drought, even in the period of adversity. But its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor cease from yielding fruit. And then there's the reminder in verse 9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There is always the problem that we have, and that is the sin nature. There is always the threat that we can uh, be deceived and be like those in both the north and the south of Israel who let their hearts be, uh, be deceived and they turned away from God and look for life and meaning and happiness and sustenance someplace other than in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that can happen to any of us. It can happen to anyone at any point in time. We can never uh, just relax and rest on what God has provided for us. But God is always there offering hope. He is always there offering grace. He is throughout the period of judgment on Israel, on Judah. He's offering grace. He's offering sustenance. He is always there, and he is the one who will sustain them even in the time that they are out of the land. And it is always God's grace that brings about the victory, and God eventually will bring about what he promised to the kingdoms of uh, Israel and Judah when he restores them in the end times and he establishes the kingdom of the Messiah. And so this brings us to our conclusion of kings, I'll come back next time. We'll go back over it in terms of a flyover so we can pull all these things together. But I think that a fundamental message that we see is what, what um, God said to Solomon in the answer to his uh, prayer of dedication at the temple in, uh, second, in first, first Chronicles 7.14, blessed uh, that if my people who are called by not my name will humble themselves under my hand, then I will, I will restore them. And that is the message, that we have to uh, reject arrogance, reject self-sufficiency, and make sure that we are focused on the Lord and dependent upon him in humility. Otherwise, the only thing that comes is collapse, the only thing that comes is divine discipline, and the only thing that comes is hardship and difficulty with no happiness, no meaning in life. The only solution is in the Lord Jesus Christ and in right orientation to God, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we've had to study through 
uh, this time of Israel's history, the many different doctrines we've studied, the many different principles that have been illustrated by the fact that you uh, have provided so much, and you gave so much for the uh, nation of Israel, and yet they turned their back on you. And so easy it is for us to do the same thing, to follow in the same path, to turn our back on you and not to trust in your grace, not to trust in your sufficiency. Father, we pray this morning that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain, that they would humble themselves and recognize that they cannot save themselves, they cannot determine their future, but that that is determined by uh, Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And all that is necessary is to simply uh, humble ourselves, to obey you, and to trust in Jesus as the Messiah, to believe in him, and then we will have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we study today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.